Is it Operation Shoebox or Operation Christmas Child? You said Shoebox, but... <laughs> She's my daughter. I got to correct some of these things and keep everything straight around here. Hey, good morning, everybody. This is exciting. I love having Operation Christmas Child up and running again. That's really a cool opportunity to, you know, you look at some of these videos and you think about the way that this is going to touch lives. And, and, you know, around the world, there's so many, so many problems. I mean, my goodness, you think about it right now, all the various conflicts that are going on, plus natural disasters like earthquakes and things like that. Uh, we've got all these, you know, all these different pressures moving in on us and beyond just the things that are happening on a global level like we've each all got our own issues going on in life all the different things that want to press in on us that could uh, disturb us or distress us and it's easy for people nowadays to almost get crippled with anxiety when you begin looking at the bigger picture you begin looking at everything that's going on all around this and the thing is as christians We've always heard that we're supposed to be different, right? That, you know, that our belief in Jesus helps us overcome all of these worries and fears and anxieties. But how? Like, you know, sometimes even the fact that we wonder how a faith in Jesus is supposed to relieve our anxiety creates even more troublesome worries because we start thinking nonsense like, well, maybe I'm doing something wrong. Maybe I, I don't know how to do this uh, right. Maybe the good Christians out there don't worry about anything. And maybe I'm letting God down and, and I'm a mess. And if you've ever had that line of thinking, I hope you never have. But if you have, just know that you're not alone with that. Because from that perspective, when we suddenly take that on and like, oh man, I shouldn't begin worrying about the fact that we shouldn't be worrying... Uh, Christianity isn't a help at all at that point. It's just another thing to worry about. So is there an answer for this? Like when we think about how difficult the world is, how difficult life can be at times, is is there an answer for how it is that our faith in Jesus can alleviate or help us through those times when we feel anxious or there's adversity in our world? I think there is, and I think Jesus addresses it in our text today. We're coming back to our study in, in John's Gospel. And if you'd like to follow along, if you've got a Bible or a Bible app, or if you're taking notes, if you'll head over to John chapter 14, please. We finished up chapter 13 last week. We're going through this entire Gospel, chapter by chapter, verse by verse. Now we've come to a section called the Book of Glory. We're leading up to Jesus' final, uh, final hours, his death and then his resurrection and ascension. John chapters 13 through 17 is basically one long speech and prayer uh, by Jesus. And it's going to actually take us some time to get through this because there is a lot. It is packed with really important messages for us as followers of Jesus. So I don't want to kind of skip through these too quickly because there's important things in, in this. We're in a section where Jesus is giving his farewell address to his disciples on the eve of his arrest. They're in the upper room, and it's been a very unsettling night for everybody so far. Jesus has done this awkward thing of washing everybody's feet, and then he let them know that he's going to be leaving them, and then he let them know that someone in their ranks was going to be betraying them. He let Peter know that he'll deny him, and all of this stuff would have been confusing and alarming and maybe even disheartening for his disciples. I can just imagine that they're getting more and more concerned and fearful about what's going on and maybe 
a little fearful about their own future in, in this. And Jesus is going to address that anxiety. He's going to let them know that he will provide the assurance they need in those times of adversity. Not by eliminating the trouble, but by providing a better perspective and the reasons that we have for trusting him in the midst of difficult times. So that's what we're going to be looking at today. I don't know if you're a person who's going through difficulties. I don't know if the problems of the world are weighing in on you. But if those are the, the, the situations you find yourself in, this is a great message. It's very apropos, I think, that we're looking at this at this time. Uh, so if you're there in John chapter 14, we're going to begin starting in verse 1. Jesus is talking and he says, Don't let your hearts be troubled. Trust in God and trust also in me. There's more than enough room in my father's home. If this were not so, would I have told you that I'm going to prepare a place for you? When everything is ready, I'll come and get you so that you will always be with me where I am. Okay, we're going to come back to verse 1 in, in, in a minute here. But verse 2 provides a statement that is very familiar uh, to us. If you were a Christian or a Christian youth in the 90s, you certainly know this verse. It's a big, big house with lots and lots of room. You remember that. If you know, you know that. It's, it's one of the favorite verses that people will quote at a funeral, and for good reason, because it's a very comforting concept. Jesus says he's going away, and his disciples naturally get anxious uh, about the future. So he offers them assurance by telling them about his father's house. And he lets them and us know that he's going to prepare a place for us, that, that he's leaving to do that. But he's going to come back again and he'll take us with him and make sure that we're with him uh, in his father's house. Now, the most common idea that's presented about what this means, what Jesus is talking about in this, is the idea that Jesus, after his ascension, has been up in heaven with a tool belt on and been working on uh, you know a, a place for each of us to go after we die a nice mansion over the hilltop uh, somewhere but there's honestly way more going on in this than than that I know that's a, a very common and very uh, uh, popular way of understanding Jesus's words here but we really need to, to look at this drill down into this because there's something really profound in this uh, certainly a life that extends beyond this life is part of what he's talking about in, in this. But he's talking about something else primarily. That phrase, my father's house, Jesus has used that phrase before. He used it in John's gospel back in chapter 2. Maybe you can remember what he was saying. He was talking about, take these things out of here. Don't make my father's house a marketplace. Anybody remember what he was talking about in that? The temple. I heard at least one person was paying attention. That's cool. So he was, he was talking about the temple, the place. And, and here's where it's very important. The place in Old Testament thought where heaven meets earth, a place that symbolized the unique relationship that, that God had with his covenant people. That's what the temple was symbolic of. In chapter 2, Jesus made it clear that he was now going to be taking on that role. He was the new temple, the place where heaven and earth meets the place of relationship between God and humanity. Now here he uses the same language this time to reassure his disciples that 
that this trouble that's facing them, this crucifixion that looms before Jesus, this going away that he's been talking about will be the very means by which Jesus will provide us a place in the family, in the house or the household of God. This is the idea behind it. The place that he's talking about when he's saying in my father's house isn't a place like some structure located in heaven, but rather he's talking about our place in covenant relationship with God. We are now part of God's household in my household, my father's household. There's lots of room. And he's kind of envisioning the expansion of this out to the Gentile world as well. There's lots of room and I'm going away, but I'll be back. You'll see me again. And then we'll all be in this together. The point is, is that we'll always be with Jesus. That's the idea eternally, but it includes our present state. It includes in the midst of the troubles that we face, the anxieties that want to press in on us. This is important because Jesus isn't trying to reassure his disciples by promising to remove all the trouble. He isn't denying that trouble is real. He's trying to get them to see things from a different perspective in this, from the perspective of God's big plan to redeem all things. And I believe what we take from this is that that we find assurance in those times of adversity by keeping in mind the bigger story, this redemptive arc that we're on. Now, being in this kind of relationship with God, having our place in his family, it, it carries with it the idea of eternal life. So I'm not necessarily going to emphasize that as much when I'm talking about this, but that's of course included. So don't, you know, don't think, oh, he's trying to take heaven away from me again. I'm not, that's not that. I'm not dismissing that idea, but we can gain a great deal of comfort by remembering, you know, that this place is not our home. You know, that's so eternity is a good thing to keep in mind. Apostle Paul said in 1 Corinthians 15, 19, that if our hope in Christ was, was, only for this life, then we're the most miserable people of all. So, you know, it, it of course includes an eternal existence with God. So remembering the bigger story that this life isn't all there is, that's hopeful stuff indeed. So we're not eliminating that, but I believe there's assurance in what Jesus is saying that affects this life as well, because it's a reminder that God is up to something in our lives. God's up to something in this world. Uh, even through the stuff that seems so distressful. The cross is the greatest example of that, how God overcame this world through that cross. Jesus didn't say, you know, don't worry, guys, the Father will get us out of this jam we didn't see. Or, no, he said, I am going to go. I, I'm going to go and die on that cross, but it's through that very cross that God will fulfill his plan to redeem you and bring you in to his family. We can find great assurance in times of trouble if we can keep the bigger picture in mind, that we are on a redemptive trajectory in this, that these things, even as difficult and troubling as they are, are working together for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. The challenge is to have the presence of mind to look for God at work. And that's not easy. You know, looking for God at work in these things, not just as an escape from the trouble, but in the very troubles that we face. 
The cross reveals that God isn't always just trying to keep things propped up or alive or the same way they always were. He's in the business of resurrection. He's about redeeming what we thought we had surely lost. That's what God is in the business of doing. God is at work. Something is stirring, even in the wreckage of our broken dreams. It's in those scorched deserts in the corners of our hearts where God actually does his gardening. And the fruits that he grows will amaze us. The deserts will become as green as the mountains of Lebanon. There the Lord will display his glory, according to Isaiah 35. Those areas where we've watched the things we've hoped for be buried and gone are the very places where God is doing work to bring about the amazing wonder of his redemptive power. Jesus told his disciples, I've got to go. I've got to leave you. But doing this prepares a place for you and you'll be amazed at what I can do through the very stuff that troubles you. That's, that's the big picture of the gospel. That's what this is all about. That's what this has always been about. We can navigate our, our way through those difficult times if we can keep that picture in view of God's redemptive work through all these things. And listen, you know, that's, that's the hard part, <laughs> keeping it in view. It's all fine and good there on a Sunday morning to talk about it, even wax poetic about it, and everybody, oh, yeah, yay. But then, you know, when we're in the midst of that, when we're going through that stuff, uh, you know, that's where we start to, 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 to struggle. So that's where we need to take that time and cry out, ask our Father, help me to see from this perspective that you are describing here. Help me to see that you're at work in this. Help me to remember that I can trust you. Which kind of leads us into the next part here. He goes on, verse 4. It says, and you know the way to where I'm going. No, we don't, Lord, Thomas said. We have no idea where you're going. How can we know the way? Jesus told him, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one can come to the Father except through me. If you had really known me, you would know who my Father is. From now on, you do know him and have seen him. Philip said, Lord, show us the Father and we'll be satisfied. Jesus replied, have I been with you all this time, Philip, and yet you still don't know who I am? Anyone who has seen me has seen the Father. So why are you asking me to show him to you? Don't you believe that I am in the Father and the Father is in me? The words I speak are not my own, but my Father who lives in me does his work through me. Just believe that I am in the Father and the Father is in me, or at least believe because of the work you've seen me do. Okay. So the disciples are still pretty confused. Uh, and listen, that's part of John. That's the way John writes this gospel. Confusion and misunderstanding are common themes that are, are working through this. But just know, we would have been confused as well. Like, I would have been chief among those going, I don't get this. This is weird. And I might be out of here. I don't know. Uh, you know Thomas, he gets frustrated. Good old Thomas. He complains. 
We don't know where you're going. How can you say that we know the way to wherever that is? So whatever you're talking about. So Jesus makes it plain. It's me, Tommy. I told you how to get to the father's household. It's through me. So Philip is equally perplexed. And you almost get the feeling that there's this creeping sense of disillusionment in this. He's saying, look, could you at least show us a picture of your dad? You know, just make sure we're talking about the same thing here. And the answer to him is the same. It's me, Philip. I am your picture of God. It doesn't get clearer than me, is what Jesus is saying. And I've been proving it all along with the miracles I've been doing. They were signs. In other words, this was not just Jesus on a, you know, on a magic show, just trying to show everybody all the cool things he can do. They were signs pointing to who Jesus is. The revelation of this God who made us. The greatest revelation, the fullest revelation that we'll have. And this, by the way, is the sixth statement of yeah, of I am that Jesus makes. I am was the covenant name that God gave to Moses when he was before the burning bush. God commissioned Moses, go and tell Pharaoh to let my people go. And, and, and Moses said, well, uh, who should I say sent me? And God responded with a covenant name that Israel held to from that time on. Eh, yeah, I am. I am self-existent. I am that I am. And, and, and so Jesus, uh, in John's gospel, uh, seven times makes this statement, takes that on as a, a self-identifier. Eh, yeah, I am. I am the way, the truth. And so, you know, he stated in this, started it saying, don't let your hearts be troubled. You believe in God. Now trust me, trust me. And that's the thing, isn't it? When the future is uncertain and, and, and troubles loom large in our view, we have to hear what he's saying. And I believe what we're, we're learning from this, what he's trying to communicate to us as his followers is that we're going to find assurance in those times of adversity when we intentionally trust Jesus. And all God's people said, oh, I was going to say, no, duh. Uh, I mean, of course, I mean, church, you're going to tell me to trust Jesus. But intentionally is the part here. Intentionally, because that's what he was encouraging from them in, in verse one. Don't let don't let your heart be troubled. This is intentional. It's an act of our will. It didn't mean that we wouldn't feel troubled. Of course we'll feel troubled. Jesus himself, just back in chapter 13, verse 21, was troubled in his spirit, thinking about the betrayal that was about to take place. The idea behind what he is saying here in verse 1 is that of living from this place of distress, allowing ourselves to dwell there, in that emotion, in that anxiety, building our perception of life and the world around us on the fears that we experience. Sure, we're going to feel it. We're human beings. We feel these things. God never told us that we're not going to be human. He never tried to tell us to deny the reality of what we experience. That's not the point. We just determine not to live by those feelings that come with the troubles and the, and the adversity that we face in this life. Instead, Jesus says, trust me. You've seen what I've been up to, is what he's telling them. How I've been taking broken people and, and making them whole. Trust me. I'm still at work. I'm still doing this stuff. 
My purposes are good. I've got your best at heart. I am your fullest picture of God. That can be a great sense of assurance when we think about who God is as he's revealed through Jesus. That's a great sense of comfort in that. And the disciples, man, they were in the dark. Like we've got the hindsight, the the benefit of the hindsight that's here in the gospels. These were written well after all of the events. They're able to put it all together and explain what was going on. But in that moment, they didn't know what was going on. They were completely in the dark. And, 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 and they weren't sure what was going to happen. They weren't sure about their future. But Jesus is comforting them, encouraging them to look to him, to look to him, to, to intentionally trust that he knows what he's doing and that he is working through all of these things, the good and the bad, to bring about what's best for us as the people who've committed our lives to him. Trust him. You're in the dark. Trust him. He'll know the way. He'll lead you home. I've used this illustration before, but when I was really young, a young boy, my brother Riley and I lived with my mom in a really old turn-of-the-century farmhouse up in Michigan. It was like 100 years old, even then. And our, our bedrooms were all in the upstairs portion of the house. And so at nighttime, my mom would turn the lights off on the downstairs, and we all head upstairs. Uh, and... Uh, if I was in a different room when the lights went out, like it was in the country, so there was no ambient light from anywhere else. When those lights went out, it was pitch black in that place. And as a little kid, I'd freak out. You know, that's my job description. And so I'd be yelling, you know, I don't know where the stairs are. I don't know where to go. I don't know where the stairs are. And my mom would calmly be saying, follow my voice. Listen to my voice. Follow my voice. You'll find the stairs. This is Jesus saying, follow my voice. Follow my word. Intentionally trust me. I'm leading you home. I love you. None of this, none of this that you're facing is to your eternal destruction. All of this is leading towards what's best. You will find your way if you listen to me. Follow my voice. Now, verse 6 of this chapter has been a sticky one for a lot of people uh, for many centuries now. Jesus makes this exclusive claim. No one comes to the Father except by me. And among the ranks of those who who don't believe that claim, well, these words generate a great deal of hostility. They didn't sound nice. And listen, listen. I mean, in a world of 10,000 documented and distinct religions, this claim means that 9,999 of them are wrong. And that seems unreasonable to a lot of people. Uh, it certainly provokes a lot of questions for any thinking person as we're trying to parse out the logistics of that. I mean, is that, is that too narrow? Is it too exclusive? And this verse sometimes has been used, I will say, very poorly, sometimes used as a club to, to smack down any ideas of tolerance or pluralism, which is all you know, very prominent within our culture right now. And, and, and then using that word, that, that verse, almost like a weapon, uh, causes a lot of people to want to distance themselves from Christianity because of what seems like religious bigotry that's coming across in, in that. And listen, I will be the first to admit, this verse, you know, well, in the early parts of my Christian walk, this verse was great. I was, I had, was using it like a club, too. It was fun. It was great. But... 
But as time goes on and you think about things and you put a real human face to different perspectives, it is puzzling and uncomfortable. It really is. Uh, uh, but, but I also find it fascinating that Jesus said this right smack in the middle of calling his followers to trust him. Trust me on this, is what he's saying. I am your flight home. And we could look around and say, but, you know, there's a lot of other planes here. Uh, a lot of people boarding other, other flights. Trust me. I'm your flight home. I'm your flight home. You know, God doesn't actually tell us what he's going to do with pious people from other religions. As much as we'd like to say this verse is addressing that, I'm not sure we can say that. The Bible's quite silent uh, about that, actually. It does tell us what happens to those who outright reject the truth that's presented to them or the, the truth of who God is. But as far as those who've never heard anything about this, the Bible's silent on that. That's a real mysterious element of the whole thing. And so, you know, I would direct you to C.S. Lewis. He's got some great thoughts on that in his book, Mere Christianity. But we have to remember the context of this verse. Because Thomas didn't ask Jesus, are our followers of other religions going to hell, Jesus? Jesus is talking to Jewish people who have always understood that the way to the Father is through Moses. In fact, Psalm 103 says God showed his way to Moses, a very familiar psalm to Jewish people who would grow up reciting it. But Jesus is telling these Jewish people that there is a new way that has come into view. He, Jesus, is the way to the Father, not Moses as they've always thought. Moses, we find out as the New Testament unfolds, was pointing towards Jesus all along. It was leading to Jesus. Jesus is the way, not Moses, not the law. So this verse really doesn't even have other religions in view, uh, you know, or that larger question at all. So for me, like when the argument arises, and if you ever find yourself in a situation like that, or I mean, don't argue with people, that's dumb, but if people are, you know, wanting to bait an argument, you know, you're saying that good people from other religions are heading to judgment. Is that what you're trying to say, being a Christian? I always say, I am not qualified to make that call. Uh, but here's what I believe. Jesus is the revelation of God and a pattern for real eternal life. And if you believe on him, you will come home to God. That much I believe and I trust. As far as how everything pans out with everybody else, that's actually God's business, not mine. But I am, I am anxious and willing and desiring to share the reality of who Jesus is with anyone who's willing to listen because I believe he is the way and the truth and the life. Either way, to find assurance when trouble's pressing in on us, we want to we trust in Jesus intentionally, determined. I will trust you in this. When world events are troubling or we're perplexed by the questions that we can't readily answer, we need to intentionally trust him. He is not leading us astray in this. Okay, well, finishing up, let's read verses 12 to 14 here this morning. I tell you the truth, anyone, Jesus is still talking, I tell you the truth, anyone who believes in me will do the same works I have done and even greater works because I'm going to be with the Father. 
You can ask for anything in my name and I will do it so that the Son can bring glory to the Father. Yes, ask me for anything in my name and I will do it. Okay, that's where we'll stop today. So Jesus has told us that we can find assurance by remembering the bigger picture that our real home is in God and that our way home is secure in Christ. We can take encouragement from that. But here we have assurance for our lives in the way of purpose. And I believe we learn here that we find assurance when we embrace our mission, the mission that we share with Jesus. It's, it's pretty cool. Jesus is letting us know that we're going to carry on the very work he did in, in this kingdom project of the announcement of the good news of God's kingdom coming into this world. And, and we'll carry on the very work he did because, you know, it'll, it'll, uh, it'll, it'll be through a, a group of people. So that's why he's saying it's going to be greater because it's through a lot of people, not just through a single person. Jesus in his humanity was one person in a small corner uh, of the Middle East. Jesus in the church rushes through the whole world. Just like we were watching in the video today, Rob shared with us, that, you know, this is, this is how these things expand and go way beyond what Jesus was uh, doing in his earthly ministry, because now he's doing it through all of us as well. So that's a, I mean, that's a huge mission that we're part of. Jesus didn't expect that his disciples, you know, were going to disband after his departure, but he expected they were going to carry on his work in an even greater magnitude than what he was doing in his earthly ministry. That's really amazing stuff when we start to wrap our mind around it. I don't know that that means, you know, that it's automatically assigning miracles to us, though I believe it includes that. I don't believe we should ever, like, back away from that and say, oh, well, you know, we don't do miracles anymore because that's weird. No, let's leave space. But we don't want to manufacture something or try to whip up, you know, uh, sensationalism through that kind of thing. But always leave room for what God may want to do. But in terms of this greater magnitude of what's been happening throughout the earth, like the whole world has been touched by this. And so much of it has uh, been changed as a, as a result of it. So when we're troubled about our lives or the meaning of our lives. We can find great assurance about what this is all about. Uh, we're on a mission from God. That's better than the Blues Brothers. We're, and of course, we've got another controversial verse in here. And I hope you don't mind me, you know, breaking these down a little bit. But these questions come up. You want to be prepared. So it's kind of my job description. That Either way, he says, whatever you ask in my name, I will do it. And that, you know, here, the, the thing is, look, and I don't want to step on anybody's toes or, or anything like that, uh, but it kind of caused a whole branch of the church to, to start, you know, using this verse as a way of, of, of um, naming and maybe claiming uh, stuff that promotes a sort of, of shallow materialism within the, the, the faith. So we have to think about it. Was Jesus saying that if we use his name, kind of like, you know, magic incantation or whatever, that, you know, if we use his name, whatever we ask for, whatever we say, he's going to do it. He's obligated himself now. That's it. So, okay. All right. So Jesus, destroy my coworker so I can have her job. You know, well, I don't really want to do that in Jesus' name. <laughs> I see that. You got me there. How do you want her destroyed? I mean, that's absurd. That would never, I mean, so there's where it's important to remember that it's in his name 
that we ask, meaning like something in his name means it's done by his authority for his purposes. That's what he's talking about. So when we're saying, you know, in Jesus's name, we're saying this is in alignment with what your greater purposes are. And we appeal to your authority to see this accomplished and and done. Right. Does that make sense? Okay. So, uh, so what he's encouraging uh, or trying to encourage in them and in us is the reality of his present activity with us. Jesus didn't, you know, leave and go off somewhere and he's just off in space somewhere. We're waiting for him to come back or something. You know, just because we're not seeing him the way the other disciples saw him during his earthly ministry doesn't mean he's somehow out of the loop now. He is still active and present within us, directing the affairs and the purposes of the kingdom of God as it advances and moves through this world. That's huge. You talk about having meaning and purpose in life. Yeah, but I got a dead-end job, Rob. I don't have anything going on. I'm worried about money and all these different things. Man, we've got such a bigger calling than whatever the job is, whatever the job description is, because whatever that job description in is, is actually maybe you could say like a front (laughs) for what it is that God is actually doing through us in this world, through the influence that we have, through our ability to, to, to meet one another, our fellow human beings on that basic level of needing to connect with the one who created us, a desire for something greater and bigger than just ourselves. I mean, the advance of his kingdom is the stuff that he's still doing. Jesus is still doing his ministry. Only now he's doing it through us. So in troubled times, we need to ask God to remind us of the mission that we're on. Because I'm going to say, like, as Americans, we get so myopic. We get so closed in on our own little system of things and and, and our own sense of security and comfort and happiness. and, And we forget There's something way bigger than all of that going on. We're part of God's invasion of this earth so that this earth will be as it is in heaven when he returns to set all things right. We're part of that process. That's huge. I can't think of anything that would provide more meaning to my life and my existence than that. And it's easy to forget it. It's easy to get it lost in the mix of all the the things that we go, go through in, in our daily lives. But this is it. We are missionaries. We are ministers. We are ambassadors. We are ministers of reconciliation, reconcili- reconciling the world to God, as Paul put it in 2 Corinthians 5. So we ask God, help me to remember that. Help me to remember what I'm here for, what I'm doing here even when life wants to press in on me. Help me, in my thinking, rise above those circumstances and see this whole thing from the perspective of your grandeur and your divine purposes. So don't let your hearts be troubled, Jesus said. And he provides us assurance for this difficult journey of life. He presents us with this bigger picture that God is all about redeeming messy things. He challenges us to trust him when we're pressed by difficulties or perplexed by our own doubts. Trust him intentionally that he is our way home. And then he reminds us that we're not left alone. We're sharing in his mission. And that means that he is right here within us and beside us on our left and on our right, both in this world and the one to come. 
He is with us. He is in us. We are not alone in this. So when troubles hound us, let's stir our hearts to believe. Let's find assurance in his words. And then let's find a stable life as a result. Right on? All right. Very cool. If you are able, uh, if you'll stand with me, please. Father, we thank you so much for these words of Jesus that comfort us and assure us of who it is that we've trusted in. Lord, you know our frame. You remember that we're dust. You know how difficult things can be and how easy it is for us to fall into patterns of fear or anxiety. But I just pray right now, if anyone came into this place this morning struggling with those things, crippled by those things. I pray that you, by your spirit, begin ministering to each one of us. We've presented ourselves before your word. Now you, by your spirit, Lord Jesus, begin to minister and reshape us, reshape our perceptions, reshape our responses. Help us, Father, to find you in transcendence above the mean and petty things of this world. Help us, Father, to walk in full assurance of your faithfulness to us. Holy Spirit, come and do that good work in the midst of your people. We pray these things, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. You unravel me with a melody you surround me with a song of deliverance from my enemies till all my fears are gone I am no longer child of God. I am no longer slave to fear. I am a child of God. From my mother's womb, you have chosen me. Love has called Child 
whispering because my microphone's on, so it doesn't really count. <laughs> Father, we thank you so much that you call us your own, that we are part of your family. And that truth in and of itself can set us free. So continue this good work that you're doing in our hearts and our lives. Continue to set us free, I pray. In Jesus' name, amen, amen. Well, let's speak this blessing on each other. If you need prayer for anything, uh, feel free to come on up here. We'd love to pray with you and see what God will do. Don't forget that uh, Rob and Susan are in the back there to, to help you out with any questions you have about Operation Christmas Child. And uh, please be sure to, to participate in that if you're so willing. But let's speak this together. May you see the Lord's goodness in the land of the living. May the Lord hold you steady and still. In Jesus Christ, hold firm. Take heart. In his love, there is hope for you. Go in peace, you children.